Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are live, rolling with Commander Jack. How's it going, brother? It's going good. I'll give the hand wave there. The hand wave. Well, it's good to have you back, man. Enjoyed having you on last time. And uh, let's see where she goes today. Had an open time slot, so we bumped you up a little bit earlier. <laughs> Excellent. Appreciate the flexibility. Oh, no, I appreciate you having me. Uh, I Like I said, I missed the drop zone last time when we were going to come back on. And, and I enjoyed the conversation. If people uh, listened previous, what was so funny is obviously – expected um recovery addiction those type things obviously the job whatever uh and man i but i enjoyed the tangent we got off to which is always fun the kind of nostalgia of military talk it it is and it's uh it's funny the universality of it doesn't matter if you're american canadian uh navy seal or (laughs) an infantry grunt like myself it's uh there's a lot of commonalities and what I find is that when you're in, there's a lot more rivalry with each other, but when you're out, uh, that kind of dissipates. Uh, well, at least it should. <laughs> and, um, there's just, it's that common bond really of, of service. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think the rivalry part, is very motivating and helps the spree decor across all the units. Um, a guy called into my radio show the other day. He didn't like the point I was making, but he started with a Navy SEAL joke, which I always appreciate uh, because it's funny. And um, and that rivalry is a big part of it across all the services and even, you know, country pride. Um, but I found uh, probably like you, you know, when you get down to brass taxes and you're there, uh, really working the craft, you don't, uh, that all goes away quick. If you have time for a funny joke, it's just uh, as an icebreaker for everybody. And everybody really works well together in what I would call, you know, the, the Western freedom believing peoples of this world and, and, and those that want that as well. And then all of a sudden it's gone because you get old in this job and you retire and you're absolutely right. What you find is what you thought was like everybody 
Uh, nobody else really has that in sectors. And so you immediately now have a bond with combat arms people worldwide. <laughs> well, there's so many things that we all hear and we, the experiences that we all share, like being in a conversation with you, with, with somebody who's never served and they, as soon as they find out that, that you served, it's always the same. Uh, well, I almost served. I would have, but, and uh, somehow for, for whatever reason, apologizing for not ever having served. It's really weird. It's like, dude, oh. well, why, why are you apologizing? It's cool. Like you did or you didn't, or there's nothing to apologize for here. What are you talking about? You know, uh, or though, I'll, or, I'll, I'll one better you, which is, um, yeah. you're, so you're right. It's a strange dynamic, but at least I'm going to give my opinion. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like those of us that did for our reasons, which is, you know, service first and then teammates and other reasons. Um, we know we, we don't want people that are halfway in. We don't want people that sort of kind of, I'm not sure I want to be here. Like, do it or don't. It's not a big deal. And guess what? None of us hold it against anybody. Like no. It's not even a thing to us, which is why it's so like a Jerry Seinfeld oxymoron type deal that so many people kind of go there. Um, I guess I'd say I love you for who you are, countryman. I mean, it's yeah. not a big deal to me, but it's a funny um, response or interaction. You're you're right about that. Well, it's, it's like there's a... Um guilt for some reason you know a guilt for not having served and it, it's just so odd yeah because i've it's like an apology you know mm-hmm. you know i would have but and and the excuses come out it's like it, there's no prerequisite to serve you know like it's 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 okay if you have you haven't it really doesn't matter like each to their own everybody has their role to play and um but it's almost as if they have this inner struggle of, in some cases anyway, where they just couldn't make that, like they wanted to, they wanted to muster up the courage because you're jumping into a dark room. Like you don't know what's on the other side. You know, uh, if you sign that dotted line, you really don't know what's ahead. Watching Full Metal Jacket ain't going to do her. <laughs> you know, um, and, and t- unless you've been on that, on the bus off to uh, the fir- that first bus ride before you even get a haircut. Um, if you don't know what that feels like, you know, that's, um, it's such a unique experience. And it's okay if you lost that inner battle and just didn't make that um, leap because of the fear of the unknown. It, it doesn't matter. Like, we all got a role well, to play. Yeah, and... I mean, sometimes it's just not what you wanted to do or you went somewhere else. It's not really, yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but it is a, it is a dynamic that's out there. And um, like I said, I listen today, especially, but even back then, I just want people to try to be the best version of themselves Um, so whether they were in the military or they're, you know, in school or they're striving for jobs, um, just go do that and it's good. And, and don't, don't ever think as best you can, what it could have, should have. I mean, we, I think we all have those moments. Um, but the fact is if somebody served, um, 
you know, for a career or somebody served for a while, uh, we've stepped through that dark door, as you say, and, and we kind of know the experience, uh, but we're going to be the last people in the world that judge or care about that. Um, ultimately, as I've said, especially recently, and I don't want to get on too much. Well, I don't care if we get on political tangents, but listen, go be the best freaking politician and do things like in America. That's America, you know, like just go do that and live your life and do things that matter. Um, and that's probably the shared experience we all have, no matter where you served. I mean, if you made it through basic and, you know, went to your tech or a school, uh, you got a job skill. That's beating most of the people out there on this planet for achievement in trying to better yourself, hence better your country, your region, um, and just keep moving on. So, yeah, it, it does. It stops me in my tracks when that occurs, and it occurs more than I think people think. I have such a soft spot in my heart for those that have a sense of incomplete service. So those that didn't make it through battle school, as a for instance, um, when I went through only about one third passed, the other two thirds didn't. And you always wonder, like, what happened to them? The other two thirds that didn't make it through, you know, what a crap feeling to carry for the rest of your life. Um, when you went through buds, did anybody ring the bell? Oh, yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because um, my, for whatever reason, my children lately have been asking about that. Mm. Um, you know what? In the United States of America, we commonly refer to as a quitter um, in the BUDS vernacular of, of SEAL training set, uh, selection. Uh, but the reality is, so we have them. We have a lot of them, about 80%. And, you know, I... I can remember having absolutely zero feeling for anyone in a negative sense um, because it was hard. There were times you were miserable. And I would almost say as people walked away, you maybe felt relief for them, but not you because you were on mission to do something. Were you tempted? And I know. Were you ever tempted to ring the bell yourself? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, I think that that's just because of a singular drive of focus. Um, had had some instances there. Is that me? What? I think I did this to you last night. Yeah, you did, Bucker. Turn everything off, jeez. <laughs> um, no, and I think that that you know I've said before, it's not like I can sustain or anybody I served with sustains that type of focus for. 20 years, you know, it ebbs and flows, but for that time period, let's kind of call it the two year track. Um, you need to be locked in. That needs to be, you know, the number one priority and you have to, you know, quickly understand the game that's being played with regard to, um, continuing, not just to obviously learn the tasks that are required, but to pass the games and to understand, you know, when you're, getting what we call extra military instruction um, that it's going to end. And then, and in the end, everybody there instructors, you know, wants you to succeed because we want to replenish the force. We want to have a bench, but we want to have a bench of high quality, you know, standards have been the same for 40, 50 years type of people. And I think when you get your mind wrapped around that 
along with the natural formation of people that are going to excel in those extreme selections, you know, they form their own class bond or boat crew bond or assault team bond. And what's really happening now, right, is that team formation of understanding your role um, and also how to adjust quickly when things happen to uh, adjust your role with the team. And, and so that, that group forms kind of an impenetrable bond or force that takes on the instructors that carries it to graduation. And when people leave that, which happens a lot early, yeah, no animosity, no, no real thought. I would say that, you know, later in my career, about three or four guys um, redesignated somewhere else in the Navy. And as years would go on, I'd run into them. I, one of them deployed with me as a support technician and I got to be honest, I was extremely happy to see them. Like when they, you know, came into my office and were like, Commander Riggins, I was like, oh my God, it's you. Um, and I was happy that they had another calling in the United States Navy that they enjoyed and they were still there performing their role. And other people um, I've ran into right from my buds class, you know, that kind of group of people that that quit and ended up getting out of the Navy. And you know what? They seem to be having good lives. You know, we talked and, um, you know, it's just, it's not for everybody, as you know, you know, this uh, crucible that is a key part of all combat arms, no matter, you know, what country, what service you're in. uh, Every group has their crucible. Ours is pretty long and daunting, Um, but it's not, uh, so exceptionally like Hollywood makes it. I mean, I would say that every special operations force that's small, unique, has a very difficult crucible that, you know, 70 to 80% of people aren't going to pass. And and so even though we use the word quitter, I don't think that's a label that many of us carry forward, you know, or hold against people, so to speak. Um You know, there's going to be, as you know, later, you know, when I talked about the bonding and the kind of team uh, cohesion, you know, that now just happens repeatedly over a career with new people coming in and and every assault team. And you're going to, in our case, train a lot to failure, even as qualified SEALs. That's just kind of our thing. Let's make training harder than combat as best we can. And so you're going to see death in training. You're going to see major injuries. You're going to see a complete collapse of tactics, techniques, and procedures, you know, while trying to uh, do a a full mission profile that's going to end in failure. Um, But we're not going to quit. We're going to learn. Okay, so that's kind of the nice thing. But uh, I guess getting, and you hear this a lot, but it's a true thing, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable is a career in the United States Navy SEAL teams. And that's something that in society in general, people are softer. There's less physical challenge. There's less physical hardship, less mental hardship for like really big hills to climb. Um, You're seeing that more and more. And with our battle school, it's not what it was. You know, um, it is not the the grind and the challenge, the crucible, as you say that uh, it was when I went through. And 
to me, that is unfortunate because now people are missing out. It's like the suck is what makes it good. It lets you know what you're yeah. worth. Um, not what you're worth, but what you're made of. So if you achieve something, but it was easy, well, then you weren't really tested. You know, um, has BUDS, has uh, Navy SEAL training, has the standard been maintained over the years or has it gotten easier as well? That's a great question. Um, you know, full disclosure, I never worked in training. I stayed um, by choice on the operations side um, forever, um, at least until I couldn't. Uh, I either injured out or ranked out, so to speak. Um, but, you know, when we rank out, we're still in planning operations. So, we're, I mean, we're around it. But, um, you know, so I'll go with kind of the word on the street. I think that we have maintained our standard more than, say, most other units in the United States militaries, and I think we're very, very proud of that. Um, if there's something I think that SEAL Team as a organization is going to hold on to, it's that, and and frankly, because it works, because we've proven uh, since our formation in 1962 that you know, not only what we're tasked with on a yearly uh, cycle, but what we're funded to do for America, the Navy, Special Operations Command, uh, we do. We do well. And recently over my time, you know, the global war on terrorism, as we call it, we flexed well outside of that as kind of a unit that could be called upon to do things that uh, – Ground Force commanders, other units, uh, the president might need done, but we don't have necessarily sitting on the shelf, you know, that's been, as we call it, man trained and equipped to do that. So we've been able to flex. And I think all of us would say that goes back to our foundational training and our foundational philosophy that our system of that crucible, like you said, uh, creates an animal that works not only for what it does, but can flex to a wide range of operations and skill sets. And so it's been good. Now, I will say this, we hold on to it. Probably in my time, and it was late in my career, and I think a lot of, uh, well, in America, it's been the women integration thing. And we're no different uh, by law. That's had to happen. Now, I will tell you, and maybe there's a million different opinions on from frogmen out there. I took one of the first female intelligence teams to combat, and they were phenomenal, and they worked very well side by side with us, and they had some very advanced training, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily associated with quote unquote women in combat arms. And I think what you would find is that if you meet the standard, nobody cares. Nobody cares if it's exactly. a dog. Nobody cares if it's a chicken, a female, a male, but you have to do the standard. And with that, I you, you're looking at a very potent force that, again, goes back to that. Now, I believe there's a couple females right now in our pipeline. And, again, you know, I think that's the expectation. And, and as you do that, that's that's great. The last thing I would say is 
we are also, and it's not advertised well, but we are about efficiency of training and combat learning. So sometimes, and I'll say some generations of people misunderstand an adjustment to training or tactics or standards to, oh, they're getting soft opposed to, no, we're, we're, we're getting efficient so we can sharpen the knife for, say, a different thing. And an example would be, you know, we used to, our fame was being able to dive down and clear ways for amphibious assaults. Okay. It goes way back to world war two. And, you know, this kind of goes to the frogman, like carry limpet mines, carry, you know, explosives, dive down, put it on a giant obstacle that's been dropped by an enemy force, you know, and you're clearing the beachheads. So one, there's several units these days that can do that. Two, there's technology that can do that, right? You don't need swimmers to swim in and do a hydrographic reconnaissance anymore because there's torpedoes that can, you know, go back and forth along the coastline and do a hell of a lot better job with side scan sonar than, you know, me sitting there on a slate writing shit down and doing it. And so, okay, that was a pretty good uh, crucible in our training for 40 years. And, um, and we removed it when we replaced it with another kind of tough suck evolution. But the fact is, is that's just not something, you know, we see seals doing in the future. And, so therefore, that's an adjustment, what I think efficiency, that allows you to sharpen the sword on a different skill set. And so you have to be careful with that. But no doubt, a lot of people have caved uh, groups. I mean, I just saw that um, Air Force Special Tactics, so we'll consider that down here, you know, a SEAL equivalent, uh, uh, Special Tactics and, and guys you know, uh, were initial word is they had a woman going through, she quit three times and it has nothing to do with the female. It's just quit three times. Most people, they'd be done with the training gone, not ushered along. And then it appears, you know, a special job was offered within if she just keep going, that's bad. Um, because you've compromised your standard of not only, you know, how many times does a person, get to, uh, I guess, try and, you know, get knocked down, get back up. And two, you well, offer it, a special incentive. And that's something you just don't do for everybody else. And so those you have to be very careful with and, and you shouldn't do. It's well, just there, that simple. There's no benefit it. to it either because uh, as she goes through, I mean, it's a small community. Everybody's going to know that um, she's not making the standard. And that's gonna that's gonna follow her. Yeah, it it hurts esprit de corps. It hurts morale. Mm-hmm. It does follow her. Um, and you know, and it's always interesting when these kind of political type movements slash oh first time hit. And you you know, I'd love to be in command of her right now because I'd love to say, okay, X Y Z is this how you want to live your career? This is reality. It's nothing against or for you, but here's, you know, if you take this path, the best thing for her to do as a professional officer would just be like, no, I'm just going to redesignate to another career. And she'd probably be great at it. Um, This one, you know, if she continues on, 
is um, it's false. It's it's not real. And God forbid, you know, in the end they get called to go somewhere. I mean, there's going to be doubt from all of her people that she leads. There's going to be doubt from her peers and um, probably impossible to recover from in all well, honesty. That doubt will get you killed. If, yeah. if you don't have confidence in, um, in who you're working with or for and shit's hitting the fan, that's going to get you killed because it's going to create hesitation and hesitation kills. It's yeah. not good and it's very, very dangerous. Uh, I just want to circle back to uh, ringing the bell. I, did, I, I forgot to translate for those that uh, don't know what that means. So um, in Bud's training, there's the quit bell and uh, probably has a different name. But uh, when you ring it's it, it's just the bell. It's just the bell, and uh, when you ring it, that that's your that's your card. That's that's like I quit, I'm out, and it's like all right, well, see you later. Go pack up your shit. You're gone. What's the psychology of that bell? Why do they have it? Well, they would tell you that um, you know the, the fact it rings. It's actually hung just like on Navy ships uh, on real close to the quarter deck where, you know, in the Navy you come across the gangplank and they ring captains on, they ring all kinds of people onto the ship and off the ship. Oh, okay. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the history. So then in, in buds where you come through the quarter deck, uh, the bell is right there on kind of our grinder, which is nothing more than a big cement slab. Uh, you know, I don't know, 50 yards by 50 yards where, you know, everybody lines up and works out. And and so they have it there front and center for you to think about, you know, number one. And number two, when it is rung, well, everybody hears it. And uh, so it's another reminder uh, that it's really easy to move on outside of here if you want. Um, and it creates kind of that shock factor that, you know, if one rings it, you know, maybe five will ring it, right? It's just all of a sudden creates that mental snap in some people that I'm going to go. Interesting enough for us, um, at certain points, they actually load the bell onto, say, a truck, and you'll be doing a run, and the truck will be right in front of you. And so they're always basically providing you that visual of the bell, and if it gets rung by a student, you know, that audio reminder that, hey, this isn't for everybody and you can quit. You just have to ring the bell. And, uh, you know, and sometimes that bell will be held by an instructor walking up and down the beach while you're sitting in the water, you know, getting very cold. Um, and it's just kind of a psychological tool or, as I would say, trick fuck to uh, find out who the weak-minded folks are that don't want to go through the crucible and the standard that is SEAL training. Now, if you ring the bell, the reality is um, that's the first sign, and and they do immediately kind of take somebody and away from that immediate, oh, they rung the bell, and they want to get another verbal that this isn't what they want. Um, I guess it's been called, a, you know, having a brain fart, uh, so to speak. Now I'd have to go back and see if back in the day, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you, you rung the bell and that was it, uh, probably was, um, by the time I went through in the, in the nineties, um, you'd ring the bell and then they'd have kind of a 
quick offsite with an instructor. And then if they said, no, this isn't for me, usually um, they'd go see one of the phase officers or more senior people. And it might even be a day later, let them sleep on it. And then they'd process them out. So really they'd give them kind of three, there it is, three chances, so to speak. But I don't recall anybody ringing the bell and then like magically they came back the next day. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's more of a formal processing thing to make sure. But yeah, the bell's very famous. It's, it's famous in SEAL team, the Navy. It's famous in, uh, uh, United States kind of military special operations lore. And it's a real thing. Is it, the bell. <laughs> is, is it unique to the sales or do uh, other groups also have the equivalent of a bell or a bell? You know, I, the air force may have added a bell cause they added their special operations group late, you know, literally in the last 20 years formalized. So they may have copied that. They may have, it wouldn't doubt me that the coast guard probably has one for their SAR swimmers or things like that. It's a very nautical thing. Um, again, going back to the bell on the quarter deck that as people come on and off, uh, warships, you know, they're rung in and they're rung out and certain bells and, uh, <laughs> certain numbers mean different things. Um, but for us, I mean, it just becomes another one of those, uh, you know, good team bonding things where you're out in the field and you're miserable and it's like, yeah, don't ring the bell, <laughs> you know, don't ring the bell. Well, one of my uh, sayings is that the only way to fail is to quit. And it, it's true. And when you quit something of your own volition, you weren't fired, you weren't removed, you quit. That is a curse that stays with you. And I, I don't even know how, you would get over that if you were the person that quit and and just gave up. That's um, that's a cross I wouldn't want to ever bear. Yeah, I think that there's, and it's interesting you bring that up because I know personally for me, um, I had a lot of issues with that with addiction um, because there's definitely a dividing line there, which is when you're striving for something professionally or self-improvement. Number one, you can get there. It might not be on your timeline, but what we do know is that those that are flexible and adapt and don't quit often more times than not succeed over other people. So that quality um, applied to, you know, everything in my life other than addiction is a very, very powerful quality. And, you know, I think that, you know, people just don't understand that, you know, you do fail at times. That doesn't mean you have to quit. You just have to learn. And so I always say, you know, you don't ever truly fail or quit as long as you learn and adapt. Now, at least in my case with addiction, being somebody that believes very, very strongly in that probably not only naturally, but through life experience and training, you know, that was hard to balance. Okay. You know, 
I so don't believe in coming off mission, but is getting loaded or, you know, being inebriated that I can't function. Is that really on mission? Um, and so I always like to say like, it, it can get all twisted up at least for me, uh, for a while, but then I go back to, well, I'm not quitting quote unquote the stuff I'm learning and adapting to become a better human being, um, which is good for me and everybody around me. But that dynamic, at least in my head was very difficult for a long time because, you know, with my addiction, I thought I could overcome everything. And so, you know, it would just be another excuse of, okay, well just, you know, just don't, don't start drinking till 7 PM or whatever. And so you're, what was the moment, Jack? What was the moment? You're applying the wrong learned lessons is what I'm trying to say. What was the moment where you went, had that realization of, holy shit, I think I might be addicted. What what was that moment for you? Well, there's actually two, and I don't encourage anybody to do this, but the, uh, I grew up in a family that has a lot of genetics that have proven out over generations to, uh, be addicted to chemicals, specifically alcohol. But I would say any type of opioid pills or anything that, you know, has a, any type of drug that has addictive qualities to it. Uh, we tend to have the genetics that just love that. Um, and so the, actually the very first time I drank alcohol young, I knew deep down inside, I knew because I could not only drink more than everybody never touched it. Number two, it made me feel so different than who I actually was. And then I had this like sustaining power, which uh, traditional people in, in, in addiction recovery would say is craving. I had huge craving, meaning it just didn't stop. Meaning start, feel extremely different, which for me for a lot of times was good. Um, stop my very active brain. And then number two, didn't stop until physically the body couldn't, right? So it was just, there was no ever one beer for me or say in that choice. It was just go until uh, physically the body shuts down. One was too many and a thousand wasn't enough. Yeah. And then the body just quits and you find yourself in weird places. (laughs) Um, So that was there, but again, I kind of denied it. And then eventually, only after three years I was in college here in America, I quit. And I pretty much did it by myself. Um, Little help through some programs, but for the most part, didn't. And then 10 years later, I got injured and I started getting on the opioids. And it was the same thing. I mean, immediately, it was like the same effect. And, you know one was one and the next day it was two. And I can remember going to meetings and some of the guys would be laughing because I was like slurring my words. And these were just pill pain pills. Um, And anyway, then we, we changed our rightfully, we changed our uh, policy that it had to be prescribed by doctors about three or four years later. And so kind of got off those, but still was in full addiction. So just got back on the alcohol 
and then it wasn't until, uh, what are we at, seven years now? I tried to jump off a, a building in front of my wife and kids on a uh, vacation in Croatia, of all places, just depressed about uh, something that had happened in combat uh, recently, That like that day that I saw in the news. So I had what we would call is really bad survivor guilt. And so I just couldn't process all that. And I just never uh, through the later half of my career and the, and the combat and the friends, I just tried to drink that away or pill that away. And so I didn't, which is nice. My wife and kids did the old, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the David Hasselhoff videos, this guy that was an actor on this famous show in America, Knight Rider, but his daughters filmed him in a drunk mess one time. It went public. Yeah. And uh, my wife and kids did that for me, and it was very, very sobering and sad. Um, and they so they filmed everything that I'm talking about. And the next morning. That must have been really know, hard for you to watch. It was. And. I honestly, I think they still have it somewhere. Um, but that was a big wake up call. And I think at that point I needed an external shock to the system. I don't, I wasn't capable at that point now of fixing myself or even thinking about it. Um, it was in a real, yeah, just, I mean, and later when I got sober, I would deal with survivor guilt and things like that. And, and the underlying causes, um, which is more mental health for me. Um, so yeah, that wake up call. And then my wife, you know, she did say, you know, if you can't get this straight, you know, I've got to get out of here with the kids and, you know, and so the next week was Memorial day. Um, Oh, it's a tough and week. I went to, yeah, I went to an outing and, um, and so I'd seen all this and I, I, uh, you know, it was heavily on my mind, but again, it was Memorial day overseas. Like that's what people do, at least America <laughs> in our military. And, um, uh, somebody offered me a beer and I took like two sips and then I just put it away and I just left. And then that was, it. that was it. Never again. And, uh, and then later I would, I would check myself in cause I needed some professional help. And, uh, and just really like, I call it a jump start. I was, I was very educated in the 12 step process and I come from a family of both addicts and um, survivors, if you will. Uh, matter of fact, I just had a cousin die, uh, same age as me three weeks ago from an overdose. Uh, so I just needed a jump start to kind of get back into that. And I was very thankful um, that a treatment center, which I didn't go inpatient. I just, I went to classes and that's what I needed is just kind of a re, um, a restart. And from there, you know, I started, uh, not only getting obviously rid of the chemicals, but, you know, for the first time in my life dealing with the underlying mental health issues that I had never talked about that were driving that some of them of which come from my childhood, some of them, from which just come from being in combat, you know, being a combat soldier for 20 years and all the stuff that comes with it. And it usually uh, is a mixed bag like that. It's usually, yeah, com- it absolutely it, is. it's usually complex, not just one particular incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that people don't tend to understand. 
they don't understand that if they were going through the same experiences that you had and those experiences injured you but didn't injure them that they're aware of, uh, well, you're not the same person because you don't have the same history. You don't have the same childhood. You don't have the same perspective. Um, Being in the same place doesn't mean you had the same experience at all. That's right. And, and, And you didn't, yeah, you didn't perceive it and take it minutes later the same way. You know, many of us have seen the same things. Many of us have, you know, been in the exact same moment. And if you can go back later and write it down and talk to people, you know, if there were 20 people there, there's going to be 20 different perspectives. There's going to be 20 different ways that people internalize it and deal with it. And, uh, and so it, it does become unique. And so, yeah, that, that was the moment for me, you know, the real moment while I knew internally, um, it was the help and I'll always be thankful to my wife and kids for that. And listen, you know what? I tell my wife this quite a bit, you know, if she's sick of it, meaning like life and marriage to me and thinks that, um, her life would be better. Like I have nothing to say other than I understand, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because I've put, you know, those are my choices and they were bad choices. And while I've learned from them, um, and obviously I hope my wife and, and kids never move on, but, um, yeah, I, I, I did it the wrong way. And that's also part of why I talk about it and I'm open um, because I realized going back to some of those ideologies, like don't quitting and don't tell people your issues. Um, that's not helpful to me personally. I have to be very open about it. Um, I've enjoyed uh, different movements that have started over the last 10 years, yours being one of them that bring these type of things more to a forefront than a, what I call a closed basement hidden in a church where everybody's smoking outside of it. Like we're a bunch of lepers. If you, you know, like if you use a 12 step program, what's your involvement Um, with Eric Husson? So same thing. I, um, started my own podcast. We've been on a little delay because I do radio every day to be honest. And so, you know, there's a pod from the radio every day, but it's branded, uh, around American politics, so to speak. But I met him through uh, my podcast called The Dark Side of Elite and the movement that he was starting with, uh, same here, you know. And, you know, certainly he'd been on a personal different journey uh, than me, but there were similarities. And then, of course, he uh, was able to shed light and really get some athletes behind it and, So there was just kind of this perfect timing of there's a lot of people clearly that have trauma, addiction, mental health issues that they can recover. Um, But this dark room, we don't talk about it, is not helpful. And we're seeing more and more that the more we talk about it, which we know those of us that have addiction or trauma that we want to deal with, one of the best things that we can do is talk about it with other people and this hive collective helps each other. You don't even necessarily need doctors. Sometimes I, you do. Sometimes you don't. I call it reco- that hive collective is I, very, very powerful. And so I met him through the podcast. Mm-hmm. We kept in touch 
and uh, we basically share similar missions and he's doing it on a grander scale and I kind of do it on a, a more one-on-one or open it up. And, uh, and so I've really enjoyed the fact that sometimes, at least down here, and it's probably like this in Canada too, you need to get people quote unquote with star power or name power to help normalize something that should be normalized by everybody. But the fact it isn't. And so, you know, his contacts uh, through sports and media have really helped that mission. And I think there's been a lot of startups that have said, okay, then I'm going to do it in my little area and, you know, Europe doing it in your area and I do it down here. And it's a big part of um, not only what I do in consulting and helping young people and teams try to uh, succeed or businesses, but really it's selfish because it's what I have to do to stay uh, clean and sober, if you will. And I don't even use those words, you know, and that's what's so interesting in my case is I, I grew up a son of addicts who, I mean, at some point it was addiction, right? So I lived through it myself as a young kid uh, with my parents, but then sobriety. And so it was like the 12 steps or that or death. And so I actually have a very, like I pull back from that model. Um, but it's a good model. I've used it myself. I don't poo poo, uh, the AA, if you will, or NA model. I, it's a great model. It's just, it's, it's kind of weird, but because of my life story, I have so many twisted thoughts over that that go back to how I was raised and how my parents had to get sober and better themselves was through that in a very dogma way. And that has caused me to just, oh, right. And so I was thankful to know that, you know, that's a way. It's a good way. One of many other ways. One of the mantras. One of the mantras that I use is to recover out loud. In other words, being transparent and letting people know that, hey, yeah, I am on this healing journey. So, and that's a that's also in one way or, or the other something that you've decided to embody as well. And you're open and transparent about your story. Why is that important to do that? Well, I think that. Again, I go back to, and and I use these words, and so if there's people, maybe like my parents, that, you know, their whole uh, recovery and growth forward is through a 12-step program, I'm not poo-pooing that. It's just that my experience is those are in a, I mean, it it even says right in it, right, anonymity. Uh, I mean, there's kind of this hidden nature to it, and that doesn't work well for me um, because, I'm not a second class citizen. I'm not somebody that, um, you know, needs to hide what it is, whether it's for my job or whatever, that doesn't help me not do these things. Right. I need to be who I am. I need to be open about it. I need to realize there's nothing wrong with the fact that, you know, I had a problem. I learned, I move forward and I keep adapting. And I have found that, Again, I think when you mix it with trauma, combat trauma, or people that have had um, 
PTSD from rapes or sexual assault or murders um, or just on their job, these are things our society hasn't found a way to just accept they're there. They're not good, but we can all work through them together, hence kind of Eric's tagline. But if we keep them in a dark place, it doesn't help the survivors. It doesn't help us educate people, the realities that are out there. And it doesn't help us give hope to people that there's a multitude of ways to recover from these things. Um, where when I grew up here in the Midwest in, in America, you know, if you were an addict, there was only one way and it was, you had to read this book and you had to go to these rooms and you couldn't tell anybody and, and all this stuff. And again, it's worked for lots of people, but it's a way. It is not the only way. There are many other ways. And if you look at that, you know, I see all kinds of people in this realm with, um, I'm going to say, trauma, mental health issues, addiction issues. Um, It's not always all or nothing. I see people who have used natural homeopathic ways, uh, which other elements of society might say are drugs, okay? But it's helped these people live a good, fulfilled life. Um, And so you've got to be careful, depending on how you want to think about these things, um, with stigmas like that. Well, whatever works, works. I mean, uh, we all have a different path ahead of us. Right. And that's fine. And that's also part of what I do with the show, is I find all these different modalities, everything that I can, because there's no one pill that's for everybody. So whatever silver bullet you're looking for, well, there probably isn't a silver bullet, but we all have our different comfort levels based on our belief system and our personal experiences. So maybe ketamine treatment is great for somebody, but maybe that has stigma for somebody else so that uh, it's just not what they want to do. All right, well, here's some other treatments. I I cover pretty much every modality that I can. And something that you said is kind of ringing a bell with me is, um, the A in alcohol, ding, ding, ringing that bell, ringing that bell. that bell, back, friend. back to the bell, but, uh, AA alcoholics anonymous. I mean, I understand how it has to be anonymous because of the stigma, but it's a double-edged sword because it's anonymous. It, it that fosters and, and also supports the stigma. It feeds the stigma. So it's, um, I, I hope that in those programs, although it is anonymous, so that people will, um, can duck under the stigma to, to attend, I hope they're also encouraged to recover out loud because it, it's no different than any other kind of goal setting. If you're going to say that you're going to do something, it is really helpful to have that public accountability by saying publicly, this is what I'm doing, not what I'm going to do. This is what I'm committed to doing. I'm doing this. And um, then people, so how's that thing going? That goal you set, are you still, are you still doing it? Yep. Still doing it or no, fell off the fucking wagon. God damn it. You know, but that public accountability is a useful tool. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, if I needed to go, you know, to get a shot in the arm, you know, that's where I would go. I would go to an AA meeting. Um, I, I don't, haven't needed to for a long time, a long, long time, but I definitely have friends that are inside of those walls, as we would say, and I talk to them quite a bit. And so there is a level 
of accountability inside the room. And I, I think the way that AA works, you know, the public sharing inside those rooms, you know, it's, it's there. And like I said, it's helped a lot of people. Um, but I also think that um, as we're seeing as more and more people discuss their various roads to recovery and trauma, you know, the more open people are, you know, and if the only place you can be open is inside those rooms, then there you go. And, you know, if anybody's listening, who's a member of those programs, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of accountability inside those rooms. Um, but I would also say, you know, it, that's not the only mechanism and this whole journey uh, for me, you know, started and I'm talking about, you know, mental health starts whenever you can remember. Uh, but it's, it's made me very, very much less judgmental of people, meaning what works works in space. Um, you know, if, if I run into folks and, and we do discuss it, I, of course I want to help out, you know, if I can. And there's just so many things. And I think that that's, what's been new to me. Um, in my journey is it uh, it opened my eyes that there were many ways and different people. I mean, I was petrified um, and I did. I mean, I hit it from SEAL team. I hit it from command. I got help all on my own um, because I didn't want the stigma professionally that it was there. Even though I think a lot of people knew it was there. Listen, if you can show up and do your job, a lot of us are satisfied with that. Um, but there were some key people that helped me maneuver to get to the place that I could get help inside the walls of active duty military and I'll forever be thankful. Um, and I think that one of the things I'm, I obviously don't get to participate in, but I hear about in those quote unquote, go back to the beginning efficiencies is we're doing a much better job now in identifying, uh, what we're calling human factors, there's some stuff in that I don't believe in that I know is being applied to the SEAL force, but I think it's important that we recognize and see the totality of these things and hopefully have interventions and training that can help people make better decisions than say I made um, for not only themselves, but for the longevity of a career and being a teammate and all those things. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's not the wild, wild West, but it's uh I think we're in a better place globally in understanding and dealing with these issues. And I think it's because of people that will talk about it, honestly, but at the same time, understanding there's people that can't or won't, and that's okay too. Um, yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, if somebody uh, for whatever reason was using mushrooms, I mean, I would have like crucified and been like, they're a drug addict, an idiot. Like we can't trust them. Today, I'm like, pass them over. Let me try that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today, if that's helping people and, you know, taking a candy bar with some mushrooms versus uh, a pill a doctor gave me, right? If I've done both and it's the same result, what the hell's the difference to me? You know, to me personally, you know, now if I have a job where they drug test me all the time or something like that, I'd have to factor that in. But I mean, you know, uh, cannabis, the other big one that's around, you know, the world in America, it, it, it's just, you know, we're getting, and I don't mind getting off, but it's just comical to me, the political ethics that are trying to be thrown on the world. Trust me, if I'm a Navy SEAL, 
commander in charge of guys, yes, I have to make sure that, you know, drugs, alcohol, things that impede the job are within a standard. If we have a standard that says no drugs, well, that's the standard. Then we enforce it, right? And if people break it, we take care of it, you know, the way it needs to be. So there's things like that. But when it comes to the wide world of mechanisms, um, you know, I don't see personally, excuse me, any different other than, you know, if I drink alcohol for a long period of time, there's going to be bad things that happen. If I take a pill, that's kind of an antidepressive pill. It seems to help me a little bit and I don't do the bad things, you know, but they're both drugs, right? And where I get it, for me, I do what's best to keep me being the best version of myself. And there's many other non-doctor-related um, treatment modalities that we're finding about every day. And, uh, and so I think, it, you know, in a way, it's good to keep an open mind about these things. But I, I do think the core is being able to communicate about it and talk about it. Well, whatever works, works. And yeah. the the shift has been significant. I'm sure it's it's helped in the States that uh, the cannabis is completely legal. It's on every corner, uh, in, in Canada. And of course, uh, when it was first going to be legalized, there's all kinds of, of fear and, Oh, it's going to collapse society where everybody's going to be walking around, uh, stoned out of their mind and traffic accidents left and right. None of that's happened. There's, right. um, uh, there's no clouds of pot smoke that you have to walk through all over the place. It's, it's not uh, downtown Amsterdam at three in the morning. It's, it, there's, there's been no change other than, uh, people are a little bit more relaxed and they have, yeah. they have access to that, uh, for medicinal purposes as well. And the stigma because it's legal everywhere. There's so much less stigma, which means people are able to use it and and not feel guilt or shame or that they're doing something clandestine you know so it can be a very helpful product for people and it's uh it's been a move in the right direction for us here and it's just a matter of time before it's legal everywhere in the states as well i mean it's more or less legal in california and colorado Mm -hmm. and that'll that'll keep going yeah yeah I, i it's interesting i in my uh, day job with the radio, I deal with a lot of politicians, and we're a very conservative state and Christian-based. And it's very interesting, uh, the arguments that I hear in that type of role, you know, for and against. And in the end of the day, Jack's opinion, like you, it's a tidal wave. It, you know, it's coming. It doesn't cause anybody who doesn't to run out there and do it. It, it It's not something that, um, uh, frankly, I – as a former Alki, I, I I don't even know how, from a society standpoint, you would legalize alcohol over marijuana. Oh, know, it's, it's not even ago. close. I, like if you if you I know, if you are know, obje- you know what I mean. So like you almost have to go to extremes. If you're to, objective for it, just a second, if you take a second to be objective and take a deep right. breath, uh, and you had to choose between, okay, only one can be legal: <laughs> booze or cannabis. It's cannabis all day long. Oh yeah. You know, no, uh, and it's so funny. It's like I always say to people, I'm like, you know, I've I've never ever seen uh, a group of people, you know, having some cannabis, and then you know they're clearing out a bar. No, and there's there's no major, pot bar major fights issues, 
And even the people that go, well, then you create lazy people. I'm like, no, people decompress the way they decompress. Like, like anything, if you're in a job where you have to perform um, and you're checked, I mean, people manage it, institutions manage it. It's, but it's funny. And, you know, here we are in America and my dad is a big one on it. You know, he still keeps track of, you know, alcohol related crime and incidents, uh, you know, versus other. And he's just like, yeah, there's no objectivity, you know, in the end of the yeah. day, it's like not even bloody clothes, terrible drug. No, uh, alcohol activates the ego somehow and uh, people puff out the chest and I'm so tough and, uh, hey, hold my beer, watch this, you know, and yeah. f- followed by immediate death. <laughs> and uh, Do you ever watch these uh, old westerns down here or whatever? And I, I, I do and I laugh because I'm like, think of, think if you were a sober cattle guy. Like, how many guys you would annihilate in street fights and gunfights? Like, like you have to think that 99% of all gunfights in the American West were alcohol induced. And if there was just one sober gunman, like he'd, he'd pretty much live forever unless he got jumps. <laughs> you know, I'm like, my God, <laughs> you gotta be just about blind drunk to think shooting at each other would be a good idea. You know, yeah. but um, I, I don't even know if that if that really happened a whole lot in the old west. I think that's more invented by the movies. People squaring off and um, yeah, it could be drawn down on each other. There's um, the world's fastest shooter, an American, of course. But um, uh, he was talking about that. He said, I, I, he couldn't find any documented cases of that actually happening in history. I mean, it must have happened by to by a couple of drunk assholes, you well, know. Of course, it had, but, to but it couldn't have been common. It's just too. You'd it, think it, human, just human nature would realize. Yeah, no, we're not going to solve things by just going out in the street. And uh, but yeah, drunken. I'm sure there was this or that. By the way, fastest human. So I just saw a guy, supposedly a former SEAL. I don't know him. I saw it on YouTube, and he was, uh, he was, he had the fastest time with the rifle from the low ready, and uh, it was impressive. Bolt action or semi-auto? No, it was semi-auto, and he just had it here, and it was just up, boom, up, boom. You know, so he had to, he had to go, and so I don't know when they say the world record. I just saw him doing it, and you know, he was clicking away, and I was like. That's pretty good. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I assume like, you know, like what is the low ready, like, or whatever the, you know, I, I don't know that it was sanctioned or whatever, but it was a typical, you know, you learn everything from YouTube these days. Well, um, can't, can't all Navy SEALs shoot an aspirin out of the air with a pistol? Uh, this one can't, but I'm retired. <laughs> So yeah, he was he was finger on trigger, then he was finger off trigger, and I was like, "That's some good quick twitch and uh, and repetitive movement there." You know, if he's hitting something out at fifty yards that fast. Yeah, when somebody assumes I have some kind of ninja skill, I I don't correct them. I just go, "Yeah, that's right." Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> All I know is I uh, the other day or through the holidays, I I put a. Uh, well, let's see where's it at. See, I don't even know what it is because, well, it's a red dot. That's what it is. But I, you know, we had it on one rifle. But see, this is this is how bad I've become. Is that I have to have one now on my pistol. 
<laughs> a little shout out, I guess, to Burris. But I was like, I've never had a red dot on my pistol. I'm like, I wonder, I see all these three gun guys doing it. And I was like, oh, maybe we'll just get a cheap one and see how that, that works. And um, I was like, okay. I was like, now I see why, why people like this. It's cheating. It's cheating. But, but, yeah, it, but there's nothing fair in a gunfight if you need it. It's an it, effective so. tool. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally impressed. I just uh, I just finally got away from old iron sights there and was like, eh, let's test this out. I'd like to try a laser dot. That'd be fun. Well, that was the next thing. Now I don't understand why guys have laser dots and that, but <laughs> I was thinking, at least from a defense standpoint, um, not military on the attack. I was like, a laser dot would probably be pretty good because you could give good warning to people. Um. Not that I sit here and think about this because I'm not a gun nut. But Pretty tough to skulk around in the shadows something. when there's a laser uh, shooting off your well, pistol, though. You can't really be clandestine when there's a yeah, laser so, coming off your, your weapon. So depending on who all the listeners are, we're going to lose half of them here. But that's exactly why I was like, no, because if I grab it out of my you know, thing next to my bed and I'm rolling around the house... I'm not going to have the element of surprise because they're going to see it because I'm going to be pointing it everywhere I'm looking and I'm not going to be cool enough to like turn it on, turn it off. It's just on and we're pine and scanning. No. And if it's like, not, so if I it's not an infrared laser and you're not wearing infrared goggles, right. it's not very <laughs> right. useful. So I was like, nah, we're not getting visible laser. But then there was another part of me that was like, well, you and know, visible cool, laser though. would absolutely give me the, the ability to say like, Hey, like I warned the guy several times, then I felt my life was in danger. You know, let's just hope I don't ever have to get in that situation. But uh, my favorite yeah, is when uh, uh, in the movies where somebody sees five laser dots on their shoulder, and it's supposedly from snipers across the way, five hundred yeah. yards away. It's like, yeah, no, no, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Yeah. That's not how no, that works at you. all. I was like, yeah, I are, but I'm going to be too tired to like put on a helmet with <laughs> night vision goggles to roll around my house or my little acreage here. <laughs> Commander Jack, thank you for being on Operation Tango Romeo yet again. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, anytime. Really appreciate it, Mark. All right, man. Please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, including Navy SEALs. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring Thank you.